I knew people at the time, you know, who expected to be running Paramount like the week after they started, the week after they graduated. And there is something to be said for paying your dues as unpleasant as it may feel at times, mm. because so much of what I learned and became useful to me later on were things I learned from what are quote unquote menial, you know, or low level jobs. I mean, like my in high school, I was um, I worked at the press office for the uh, New York City Controller and um, I learned how to write a press release there. You know, it was like I knew nothing. I mean, I was in high school, right, about press release and stuff. And that was a skill that has been immensely useful to me my whole life. And, you know, it was something I learned when I was a free intern, you know, working in, in the controller's office. And, you know, so many great experiences. Fortunately, never taken a job where I felt that it was completely, you know, a waste of time. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Mentors on the Mic podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in TV, film, commercials, and off-Broadway. And every week I bring you an incredible mentor in entertainment, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. Thanks for listening and let the episode begin. Happy Mentor Monday, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mentors on the Mic podcast. I'm thrilled to introduce you to our next mentor, Mark A. Altman. Mark is a television and motion picture writer, producer, and director, and currently the showrunner and executive producer of the CW series Pandora, which is currently exclusively on Amazon Prime in the U.S., He's also been a co-executive producer of The Librarians on TNT, Agent X. He's been on, you know, Castle on ABC, Necessary Roughness at US, on USA. So he's done it all. And he's also sold numerous pilots and produced the $30 million film adaptation of the best-selling video game, DOA, Dead or Alive. He's also put out the award-winning movie Free Enterprise, starring William Shatner, his childhood hero, and Eric McCormick, famous from Will and Grace. And that's a really interesting story. He broke down how he was able to get William Shatner attached to the project, complete with a little, like, impression of William Shatner, Bill, as he was called. And he's just done so much. And he has such like a great journey, interesting journey that I learned so much from. I really asked him to break down the role of a showrunner, of an executive producer of a show. What does that mean? What are the responsibilities like? So fascinating and something we should all know being in entertainment. So I'm just going to get right into it. Without further ado, here's Mark A. Altman. So I always start with the question, what was your first role in the entertainment industry? What was my first role in entertainment? Well, that's an interesting question. Well, I mean, I guess professionally, professionally, it was, um, well, wow. I, I, you know, I, I would go back, I guess, to college, you know, when I was kind of the arts and entertainment editor of the school paper, eventually editor in chief. But, you know, my first job job. Well, then, but then I was an entertainment journalist for a while, but, but I, my first job job was um, working at a talent agency right after I graduated from college and, you know, worked as an assistant at a talent agency for, uh, uh, for a couple of years before I moved out to California. Nice. Um, that was New York. So uh, one of those great first time experiences, you know, because you'd read all these scripts that were coming in for talent and um uh, worked with all kinds of personalities, some really wonderful, nice, mentoring, nurturing people. And then, you know, also the antithesis of that, you know, screamers and all that and, and miserable, angry people. And and so you got the the whole the whole, you know, lay of the land uh, of what the entertainment business would be like the next many decades. But it was a great experience because a lot of the people that I met who were assistants back then, you, you know, we all went up to kind of ladder together and and people I've worked with, you know, subsequently. Um, you know, one of my favorite stories was um, uh, the assistant for a casting director at the time uh, was this uh, woman, uh, Christine Sheeks, and she'd been working for John Lyons on a bunch of the Coen Brothers movies. And when I was about to um, do my second movie, she had just done Boogie Nights and I called her to congratulate her and said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm about to produce this little indie thing. She said, well, send me the script. And I sent her the script. 
And she ended up, you know, casting that and ended up casting a lot of movies for me, you know, subsequent to that. So, and, and there are, you know, so many stories like that of people that, you know, used to have drinks with or hang out with or, or just talk to on the telephone, you know, as an assistant and very low, you know, very low level. Um, but uh, that ultimately benefited me enormously, you know, many years later. And then, you know, calling agents on other projects. I mean, there was a project recently where I was hiring someone. Uh, you know, when I had to negotiate the deal with someone who was an assistant when I was an assistant at Abrams back then, which was which was odd, particularly when I wasn't happy with the negotiations. <laughs> that Fair was enough. unpleasant. <laughs> but it's good because you you were like building your tribe and you guys were going up together. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's the thing I, I just, you know, uh, rubs me the wrong way. I, I, I knew people at the time you know, who expected to be running Paramount like the week after they started, the week after they graduated, you know, mm. and 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 there is something to be said for paying your dues as unpleasant as it may feel at times, mm. because so much of what I learned and became useful to me later on were things I learned from what are quote unquote menial, you know, or low level jobs. I mean, like my in high school, I was um I worked at the press office for the uh, New York City controller and um, I learned how to write a press release there. You know, it was like I knew nothing. I mean, I was in high school, right, about press release and stuff. And that was a skill that has been immensely useful to me my whole life. And, you know, it was something I learned when I was a free intern, you know, working, you know, in the, in the, in the controller's office. And, you know, then when the building was in Ghostbusters, I thought I was really cool because I worked in the building where they showed ghost, you know, Ghostbusters, you know, yeah. the municipal building across from City Hall. You know, so many great experiences, you know, fortunately never taken a job where I felt that it was completely, you know, a waste of time, mm. you know, um, always learn something from from everything that I've I've done. I've taken something away. Even the worst job I, <laughs> job I read was still the job that got me out to L.A., um, you know, I was working in New York at the talent agency and a friend of mine from college said, hey, I'm working for a T-shirt company, a T-shirt company, apparel company that huh. screen prints T-shirts and said um, and offered me at the time what seemed like a really a lot of money. And they would relocate me to California to like find entertainment licenses to put on T-shirts. And I'm like, well, I don't really want to do this job, but it'll get me out to, to Hollywood. Little did I know it was in Costa Mesa, which was not Hollywood. It was an hour south of, 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 of L.A. But I, I came out and did that job and, um, you know, was out there trying to identify movies and TV properties for to put on T-shirts. And then the, the, the head of the company, this, this guy um, who had only recently gotten into the apparel and knew nothing about it, said, I want to get the rights to the Harlem Globetrotters. And I'm like, do you really want to do that? He goes, yeah, I do. And so we ended up getting the rights to Harlem Globetrotters, but they spent so much money for the rights to the Harlem Globetrotters that um, we weren't able to um, license anything else. So then my job sort of became going to stores to change and trying to sell the Harlem Globetrotters apparel line. And I'm like, mm. this is not why I came out to California. Yeah. And, and so I ended up uh, leaving that job and immediately moving up to Los Angeles. Um, but, uh, the, I think the day I left that job, but even that, you know, I was putting on these events, like at trade shows, like for the Harlem. So like I did this big event at Madison square garden with the Harlem Globetrotters, where we unveiled the Harlem Globetrotters apparel line. and, and as ridiculous as all that was at the time and how I had no interest in being in the Shimada business, I, I learned so much about producing, you know, that ended yeah. up benefiting me later on. And of course I was still freelancing, uh, I was writing for a lot of magazines and about, you know, entertainment. So that right. kept me in the, I mean, I remember when I was down, you know, at this job, this horrible job in Costa Mesa with the t-shirts, you know, I would, I would have to go out for meetings because I was literally going up to Paramount and Fox to go and do um, interviews for my, you know, side. For your gig, freelance which was writing. Freelance writing, you know, which yes. was great. I'd be like, did you always have an idea of what you wanted to do? Like, were you always like, I'm going to write and I'm going to figure out how I could just keep writing or is it, you know? Yeah. I, I pretty much knew ever since my mom took me to see North by Northwest at a revival house in New York, the failure uh, that I wanted to make movies. That was kind of the big film. You know, it's like a lot of people say Star Wars and, you know, Star Wars had a big impact on me, but it was really North by Northwest uh, mm. that, that screening that I came out of. And I'm like, oh my God, I want to do this. I was obsessed by Hitchcock movies and wanted to do that for a living. Through that process, you kind of waver a little bit. People say, what kind of 
you know, businesses, that movies, you know, you should be a lawyer, you know, you should be. The, yeah. So there were times where it's like, oh, maybe I'll be a lawyer. But I never it was never I really was that interested in any of that. And it always came back to movies and television. Mm. And thankfully, that was what ended up happening because that was where my passion was. I mean, it was right. never going to be. I mean, I think like in high school, college, it was kind of like. I mean, I was a political science major, but right. even then I kind of was making movies all the time. I was just telling my son the other day um, because Gloria was playing on the uh, on the radio. And I said, oh, when I was in college, Hurricane Gloria was a huge hurricane. Um, and I, like an idiot, went out with my Super 8 camera. I was filming in the middle of the hurricane at Brandeis oh. at the castle. I was outside the castle with my camera filming this huge storm. Because I said, oh, this will be this right after Terminator came out. I don't know how I'm going to use it, but I'm using oh. a movie for like the big time travel sequence when the person's going back to the 1990s. That's commitment. And, and, and I remember because I'm out there in the storm getting blown around with a stupid camera. And I, then this huge tree like fell and came down and like, barely missed hitting me. I said, I think I'll go back inside now. Yeah. Yeah. That's commitment right there. I mean, did yeah. you end up using that footage? Never. Oh, never. Yeah. But it was the, it Wasn't was the great? idea. It was the idea. So you're in LA, you're, you left the t-shirt business at this point. You're still freelancing. Yes. You're going to interviews. What's next? So then I was journal doing the journalism thing full time. Yeah. And I remember there was a magazine at the time. It was kind of an indie grunge underground magazine, film magazine called Film Threat. I'd interviewed Abel Ferrara for his remake of, the, of Body Snatchers. And I emailed the editor, Chris Gore, to see if he was interested in it. And he wrote back this really, because this was his his raisin detra. He was a real, he loved reveling and being an asshole. Like, you know, he, he kind of like, that was the, you know, his, he was really a lovely guy, but he, he thought it was cool to act like an asshole. So he, um, so he, uh, he wrote back, well, you know, I don't know if we'd really be interested, but I see some of the other magazines you work for and, you know, our magazine's very much cooler than those. And, you know, just this whole skating. But then at the end, he wrote something like, but I'd like to take a look at it. So if you want to send it over. And I wrote okay. back an equally obnoxious letter. I basically said, <laughs> I'm sending it to you. I, I, I have no doubt that you'll hate it. I said, but the good news is it's on recyclable paper. So when you throw it out, <laughs> it'll be good for the environment. So he read it and he loved it. He loved the fact that I was throwing the shit back at him. So he called me and and then it was it was interesting. He said, yeah, I would like to run this. He said, we end up, I ended up doing a couple articles for them. And then he said, you know, we're thinking of starting um, uh, a sci-fi magazine. Is that something you'd be interested in doing? Mm. So the funny thing is, this is all for Larry Flint, who, okay. you know, people don't realize that in addition to all the adult magazines, he also had a very flourishing um, uh, consumer magazine division, which wasn't uh, uh, the adult magazine. So I ended up starting a sci-fi magazine, which nice. lasted a couple of years for them. And uh, which was good because I met a lot of people at the time. It was a chance to like meet a lot of filmmakers. And um, we I produced an award show that was very successful and a bunch of other stuff. So it was a very, you know, it was a good time. Met a lot of people because I didn't yeah. really know a lot of people in L.A. at the time. because I recently moved out and um, it was it was a great you know experience overall. We I did that for a couple of years until they sold it. Is this mostly in your twenties or thirties? This was yeah. This was like my early to mid twenties. Yeah. So it was it was a good time. That was when print was still a thing. You know, newsstands were bountiful. You know, yeah. there wasn't really an internet strategy or internet at that point. Of, right. Of consequence. So um, and we kind of were a precursor to the internet because our whole stock and trade was. Uh, the magazine for science fiction fans with a life. We were really edgy. We told it like it was. We pissed off a lot of people and it became a real problem because they'd come to me and say, like, you know, the advertisers, some of the advertisers are angry because you guys are so negative or so critical mm. of things. Like, because at one point we did a cover story on 50 Reasons Why Return of the Jedi sucks. And they're like, we're losing all the advertising from LucasArts. Wow. You've got you, you know, and and it's like, well, yeah, but you know, the reason people love the magazine is because it's like edgy and cool and uh, and and it's not the usual press pablum, but um, uh, but uh, you know, and then it was it was really funny because when they sold the magazine, the the people who bought it, they demanded to know uh, how we did the award show. They they wanted me to turn over all my files on the award show. I said all the files are in here. They're in my head. Everything we did, there's no files to turn over. So good luck with that. They never put on a award show because you know I had basically done it with you know a bunch of friends yeah. uh, who I pulled in to help. 
And, you know, we did this great. Uh, we did it for a couple of years. And the last one we did the El Rey and we had amazing turnout. And, you know, I think had we gone another year, it probably would have been televised. And, wow. you know, basically did it for virtually no money. But it looked like uh, the Golden Globes. I mean, yeah. it was really amazing. That was that was me when I was young. So you did that for a while because you were you were ready yeah, for, for a lot of years. different places. Yeah. And then what? Yeah. What was the next thing after that? And then after that, uh, it was shortly thereafter was when I, I sold my first movie. I actually I'd sold a couple of scripts, but I hadn't um, I hadn't made anything. Mm. And um, it was funny because Free Enterprise, which was my film with Bill Shatner and right. McCormick, was sort of marred in the days it was very much uh, marred in in our real life, which was basically laser just shopping and drinking, and it was it was swingers with geeks. I mean, and that <laughs> was our life, which is you know going to Toys R Us and uh, going to uh, you know and and, and going to uh, at the time it was Lola's, which was a, a bar in Fairfax that we would mm-hmm. hang out and have apple martinis and uh, all, and 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 uh, so it was very it was very similar to to whole the whole swingers thing. And so one day we'd gone to this laser to sale. And then gone to Toys R Us. And I remember one of our friends, our good friends, Kay Rydell, who's a very successful showrunner herself now, turned to me and she said, God, you should make a movie about your lives. And I said, yeah, but everyone says that, you know, it's like every office mm. I've ever worked in, they said, oh, this is so funny. This would be a great movie. And it's like, but so that night, I just, on complete lark, I was bored. And I, I just started putting together something, uh, uh, the script, which was sort of a Ramona Clef about my good friend, Rob Burnett, myself based on some really crazy stuff that had happened to him specifically, you know, because he was quite a rank and tour and would tell these stories. And so I, I just total stream of consciousness. And I said to Rob and he's like, Oh my God, this is awesome. And I'm like, yeah, I know it's crazy. Huh? And so I ended up finishing that script at the time it was called Trekkers because right. again, very influenced by swingers and because we were huge fans of swingers and uh, uh he was working as an editor for this guy and we slipped him a copy of the script who we, we'd actually been writing a script this is funny called day of atonement it was a jewish supernatural thriller about oh, a divot so good and uh and we were having trouble trouble cracking it because you know it was like everyone would say well it's like this is a mel brooks film it's like no there's a serious jewish supernatural thriller about a divot and uh i'd been a huge fan of the patty chayefsky uh, play the tenth man, and um, and we never able to really crack it. But then we we slipped uh, the producer, the, this guy who was doing this movie with him, uh, the script to Free Enterprise, what became Free Enterprise, and he loved it. But uh, the guy he was working with didn't didn't want to fund it. He wanted to do the Jewish thing. So w- he said, "I love this so much. I'm going to go find the money." And he ended up introducing us to some investors. And I remember flying to New York and meeting them at what is now the plaza, you know, yeah. be owned by he who shall not be named. I don't think he owned it at the time. Yeah. Met them. And, and, and literally in the meeting, they said, we want to make this movie, which was great. And, yeah. and, and, and so Do they, they say it very clearly. Cause I've heard a lot of writers say that like, they'll walk out of meetings with people and the, the people will be like, no, they'll walk out and they'll like, I didn't realize that was a yes. Like it was a little, confusing. no, they, they were very, very clear. clear. I mean, we were very clear. We were very good. Rob and I were very good in that meeting. And they were very clear. They loved the script. I think they, when they walked in, they knew they wanted to do it, mm. but they just wanted to see who we were and see if they could, you know, w- make sure that they felt comfortable with us, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and they did. Good. And, you know, it was a funny thing because at the time, this whole movie hinged on Shatner, on having Shatner, because it was yeah. all about, it was basically play it again. Sam, instead of bogey, it was, you know, this Shatner, it was the bogey character. And, and, um, so they funded it without us having Shatner. Everyone was so sure that Bill Shatner was going to do the movie. It's like, why wouldn't he He's doing at the time? He wasn't doing any, he was doing a low budget B movies. He, you know, he hadn't done his, hadn't had his big third act yet. And we sent him the script and, and made an offer and he passed and he passed again. And, and it was like, we were in pre-production, we were casting and we were, oh you know, we had hired our uh, below the line. Pe- I mean, it was, it was really stressful. I, one weekend I went and wrote a script without Shatner. It was like about a uh, Shatner-esque character um, who we thought Malcolm McDowell would play in a, a show called Solar Quest, which was going to be the equivalent of Star Trek. And um, I was praying we never had to use that script, even though it was pretty funny. And um, and so we went, we, we wrote what was um, eventually dubbed by Shatner, this tear-stained letter. And in it, we wrote to him and, 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 and told him how much the script 
uh, how much he meant to us and did not mention Star Trek at all. Okay. We, we appealed to everything that we knew what a great comedian he was. And we talked about Airplane 2 and him on Fridays and Saturday Night Live and how this is a chance for him to do comedy. And that's what was so, so appealing to us and blah, blah, blah. And this whole thing. So a couple of days later, we our assistant comes in and says, oh, uh, Bill Shatner's on the, on the phone for you. And or William Shatner's on the phone for you. And we're like, we didn't believe it because our friends all knew how desperate we were. And we thought yeah. it was somebody playing a prank. So we got on the phone and go, hello, this is, uh, this is Bill Shatner. And we're like, oh, my God. And he goes, uh, and he goes um, so I read your letter and uh, I'm not doing your movie. And we're like, why is he calling us? He says, yes, it's very, it's very funny. It's, it's very good. I, I, I really like the script quite a bit. But you have me as a god, a guru. He says, I'm not. I'm a fucked up guy. It's like, what? What is this? And we're like, uh, so, Bill, um, Shatner, is there anything, you know, that could convince you to do the movie? He goes, probably not. Because, well, wait, maybe there's one thing. And it was like, then we knew we had him. We knew we had him. And he says, he goes, well, maybe if you wrote me as a fucked up guy, that's something I'd be interested in playing. He says, I'm embarrassed to sign autographs. He says, I don't, I, I, you know, I, I'm not, you have me as perfect. And, And so we're like, Oh, okay. Well, what kind of problems with William Shatner have? He goes, girls. <laughs> and we're like, and we're like, oh my God, that that's so funny. Yeah. And so we start uh, talking and kicking back ideas for 20 minutes, just going back and forth. This really ferment of creative ideas. And he goes, call me Bill. And we're like, Bill this, Bill that, Bill that. So finally, about 20 minutes, half hour goes by. He goes, okay, guys, you have your marching orders. So you rewrite the script. I'll read it. I'm not saying I'm going to do it. In fact, I probably won't, but um, I will definitely read whatever you send me. And we're like, oh, man, that's great, Bill. He goes, now you can call me Mr. Shatner. <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, great. So um, we rewrote the script. We sent it to him and he said, uh, I'm going to do the movie. And this Amazing. is like two, two weeks before. Oh, my God. And uh, so I would never recommend writing a script for one actor in the entire world. It's like, uh, don't do Bill uh, Malkovich. Uh, and so we, we, we made the movie and uh, it was a great experience. I mean, but it was like El Nino. And so like, we just had oh. you know, the first time we had a huge beach scene in Malibu and they closed the beaches in Malibu. So like I had to rewrite that like overnight to change it to something else. And just, it, you know, constant problems. I mean, locations that were flooding. I mean, it was a once in a lifetime kind of storm, but it was a really fantastic experience. And I mean, I remember Eric McCormick, uh, who was in it with uh, he had just shot the Will and Grace pilot. Oh, but he hadn't been picked up the series yet. Oh, and good so, time. Good timing. Um, I remember coming out and we were in a, a second floor of an office and looking down at the parking lot and I would just see Eric pacing, mm. looking at his lines, pacing nervously back and forth. I'm like, Eric. And he was so embarrassed. I saw him. He, I said, don't worry. You're going to get this. You're great in the audition. You're going to be awesome in the callback. I said, don't be worried. <laughs> You're right. And he got it. He was, he was great. And he was a, just a delight. And we, we just had so much fun making that movie. It was one of the great experiences. You know, I've done a lot since then, and, and yeah. uh, but it was really one of the great fun experiences because, you know, it's my first movie, get to make it with my childhood idol. Yeah. You know, Shatner was just a wonderful, wonderful, you know, any people always ask about the horror stories and I didn't have any horror stories. I thought he was just, he was so great. And I think it was because we treated him with respect. We were happy to have him. I think we got to, he got to do stuff he'd never done before. You know, since then he's become famous for all his comedy. He later yeah. got the big giant head, the Priceline campaign, Priceline. Uh, you know, which you was funny. Call, because, did you have to call Mr. Shatner the entire? No, no, we called him Bill. And it took a little getting used to calling him Bill. But uh, and I, I remember he, you know, he, I, I don't I'm not into autographs at all, but I had him sign a one sheet for me. Oh, yeah. Says, do you want me, what do you want to put? And he says, oh, just whatever you want. So he signed a bill and I'm like, oh, man, I really wanted to sign by one channel. Right. But, uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, but it was it was fun. So that was a great experience. And, you know, then we went on the festival circuit with it, right. which was really fun because it was really my first time to travel. I didn't study abroad at all. So, uh-huh. um, you know, got to go to Spain and to France yes. and all these wonderful places. And it made me fall in love with travel, international yeah. travel. And, you know, just going to Spain was just, you know, with our first movie, that was just absolutely remarkable. And I've been to that Sigis Film Festival many, many times since. I mean, I remember we were in France for an event that we were guests at. And it was so embarrassing because here we were, first time I ever in Paris and just having the most wonderful time meeting these wonderful people. And uh, they were so excited. They said, oh, the, the, the final night, you're going to be so thrilled. Uh, we're, we're having a very special place. They said, oh, really? Where? They go, Planet Hollywood. I'm like, well, <laughs> I, I came halfway around the world 
to oh. like go to Planet Hollywood. I'm in France. It's like yeah. I don't want to go to Planet Hollywood. But that was a really great experience. And um uh I just um you know and then you know went on and 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 did a bunch of, of other stuff. We were films. still doing a lot, a lot of films, a lot of stuff because we had we we you know, we bought a magazine the magazine I used to write for right. the, the the publisher had died mm. and his widow came to me for advice on how to save it. We ended up buying it and publishing for a couple of years. And then we, we spun off a movie division. So we were doing, this was during the heyday of directed video movies on BD, uh, yeah. DVD. So we we're doing a ton of those, you know, for like no, not a lot of money, but you know, some were good, some weren't as good, but it was fun, you know, and it was just constantly working. Yeah. And, but you know, it, it was getting to the point where it's like, I wanted to, you know, do something. I was getting interest in TV and great opportunity presented itself because I just um, been approached by like sci-fi channel to do this yeah. thing. They called, they want to do blade with zombies was uh, oh. so I did this thing called den debtor. And uh, you know, I really didn't have <laughs> time. Cool. I was doing a big movie called uh, dead or alive based on a video game with mm -hmm. Constantine and it was shooting in China and I was doing a lot of rewrites for them and some other stuff. And I called up my friend Steve and I said, you like zombies. I said, yeah. Yeah, you want to you want to write this thing with me because I don't have the time to do it myself. And, you know, he just come off NCIS and he's like, oh, that'd be fun. So we wrote it. We had a really good time, really good yeah. time working together. And at that, and after that was over, we were like, you know what? We should keep this up. Let's keep doing it. And so we decided we we're going to work in TV together and uh we got castle and then from yeah. there on it's just been show after show after show so 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 curious before we get into the television aspect i mean obviously you had a lot of films in your belt during that time have you ever had plans or interest to go back to film yeah i mean you know look the, the problem is the film industry right now it's just like it's yeah. so um it, it, it's so bifurcated you know it's either super small indies or right. giant, huge blockbusters. Right. And, you know, we've sold, you know, scripts like a lot of writers, you know, but, you know, the path to production is is slow and unwieldy. So, um, you know, we'll see. I would like to go back to film. In fact, I'm writing something now that I want to direct that, um, uh, which is so 180 from everything that I've ever done. It's actually a Holocaust drama. But oh. um, but uh, so my hope is to to do that next year I'm, nice. I'm kind of writing it now Fingers i've been writing crossed. it during, we wrote a big big movie for for beacon which i'm hoping will happen who you know was they're terrific and the air force wanted a bunch yeah. of other things do you feel like a writer for television just has more power and more say though for you know for tv i feel like a writer for tv is is very much in it and then one for film you know there's lots of people what do you think about that yeah i mean that's true and i, I you know for me I always loved publishing. You know, I love the immediacy of it. You know, the experience goes back to Brandeis. I love doing the Justice Weekly because basically things would start up on Monday and, you know, Sunday you would send it to the printer right. and Tuesday you'd have an issue. And every week that would happen. It was a punishing schedule, but it never ended. And there was a sense of camaraderie and fun. Mm. And one way or the other, you needed to get it done. Mm. You know, there was no like, oh, you know, this week we're not going to do it. Right. You know? And 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 you were so to me, television is as as, as most as close as I've gotten mm. to recapturing that experience of doing the justice. Yeah. You know, and 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 all my experience in publishing have been for the most part really good. You know, it, it's been it not particularly lucrative, but it's been really satisfying. And I've worked with people that I like. Like when I bought Cinefantastic, I hired one of my good friends who was kind of at a crossroads and he did it for many years. And you know, he says the best job he ever had. And, and mm. you know, we geek was a magazine, a fictional magazine in free enterprise that we ended up doing as a real magazine it's still going. I've sold it like twice and nice. it's still being published. But uh, it, so, you know, it's like, I love that, you know, publishing whereas movies are so slow, you know, I mean, when I look at something like dead or alive, which is a movie, but I optioned the rights it took two or three years to sell them yeah. and they developed it. Then it got made. And then the Weinstein company buried it and it didn't like mm. barely came out. And then, you know, I wasn't even happy. I mean, I remember giving notes on the movie and I gave like, you know, 20 pages of notes, but you know, I wasn't that thrilled with the way. So it's like very unsatisfying. Whereas um, TV, you know, there's much more control and much more, um, I get, you know, there's much more so good or bad and, and you're constantly creating products, right. You know, and you have and, to be creative every week. Stuff. You have to be creative every week. Yeah. And, and I love that. And I, I really love that. And it, you know, look, I grew up on movies. I love movies. You know, I hope 
you know, I, I'm beyond the point where I can really do really small movies because you just don't make, you know, yeah, I, you know, and the budgets are too small. But you know, also, you know, unless you're one of those, you know, top ten directors, you know, ultimately it's the studio or the producer or somebody who's going to be in control, and that's not something that really appeals to me. So, um, you know, I that's what I love about TV because the showrunner is king, yeah, queen. Which I definitely have questions about, by the by. So I'm going to just sort of go through the TV shows quickly. So now you're you're in you're in writing room, writer writers room. Yes. Wow, I'm really speaking well today. You're in writers (laughs) rooms. You skip ahead, right? So you go right to producer. So how was that? Did you have to now get used to being in a writer's room for a TV show or? Well, it, it started, it was really funny because uh, on our first, the first show we did was Castle. Right. And it was the first time that Steve and I, who are now writing partners, were in a room together because when we wrote, he wrote at his house, I wrote at my house or my office. And we used to joke, we were like day writer and night writer, mm. 24 hour day writers. He would write like seven to seven, from seven in the morning, he was a day person, to like seven to night. And I would take over and I would write from 7 p.m. to like seven in the morning. And and we just go back and forth. And then we talk about something if there was. But we never actually other than when we're on set, we're like never together. And and, and then we wrote we sold some pilots and it was the same thing. Like other than occasionally a few lunches where we figure things out, you know, we don't really weren't together. So Mm -hmm. on Castle, we're given an office. This is Altman and and Krasir. And I remember one of the showrunners called us Woodward and Bernstein. (laughs) We always call us Woodward and Bernstein. And and we're at these two guests that looked at each other. I'm like, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know if we're going to like be able to get along. And it it, It it actually worked out. It worked out great. It worked out. The the key was we are so different Mm. that we really get along well. You know, we're we're so different that uh, we complement each other. His strengths and my weaknesses and my strengths and his weaknesses. And we're just different people. So we get along. And um, did you overlap with David Gray? I forgot. I, I, that first year. Yeah, we did. Yeah. We, we overlapped with David. That's where I, we reconnected with David, you know, and, uh, you know, the whole Brandeis Mafia. So nice. that was great. But I it was a weird that. year because we yeah. had, there were two showrunners and um, they didn't like each other. Mm. And um, there wasn't a room because the, the, the more experienced showrunner didn't believe in rooms that year. Yeah, David said that. So. He was like, it wasn't really a room. It wasn't he really said, it, he said it, it was from, very well done. Like it was like a lot going on. Like it was very, but it was, he said it wasn't like a normal writer's room. I think. Yeah, it wasn't at all. And he had come from law and order and they didn't right. really do rooms. And so, and later on the show would go to a room, but it, but at that point it didn't. Mm. And there were occasionally be mini rooms because writers would be sitting around and mm. we just sort of mini room stuff. But it was a weird, it was a very strange year. And the show hadn't really found itself and there would just come off a huge writer strike. Right. And, um, they yeah. cut the order because they like didn't think the show was going to work. And it was the only yeah. show that ABC put on that that uh, that worked because that it was well. like the unusuals. It didn't do well. It was just like it was really it was interesting. So but then yeah. we, on other shows, we went to a more traditional room. Yeah, you structure. went to Necessary Roughness on USA. Yeah, and Necessary yeah. Roughness, which was great, great experience. Femme and, Fatale um, on HBO Cinemax. With Femme. And then Agent also X, we... TNT. Yeah, Agent X was a really great experience. Yeah. That was that for us because it was a big show. Um, it, w- it was shot at Fox, so it was shot here. You look at something like Necessary Roughness, it shot in Atlanta, but the writer's room was here. Mm. So, like, I mean, we literally never went to Atlanta, set. which I, wow. I hate not seeing, the, not being able yeah. to get the sets. I'm sure. And, 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 and meet the keys. And, you know, obviously it wasn't our show, so... Um, the, you know, the showrunners went, but I, I I don't like not having that kind of connection. So like with Agent X, it was great because the sets were literally across the street from our office, like Amazing. a little street, like, you know, it was on the lot. So we were like, yeah. here, and he got the door and there were stages. And, you know, it was Sharon Stone and this wonderful actor, Jeff Hebner and James yes. Jones and, yes. uh, so, you know, Simon and Simon, the great, um, uh, uh, you know, from, from Simon Simon. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. But he, of course, was so brilliant in Deadwood as well. And, oh. um, just this is a show that had enormous amount of potential. Yeah. And, I, you know, unfortunately, the network didn't have a lot of love for it because uh, Michael Wright, who greenlit it, had just left and Kevin Riley that's, took over. That's what happens. I mean, as soon as and you have someone leave, it changes the dynamic of everything that they had slated. It, it's such a shame because it was really finding its groove. And it, it was like, great. The whole the whole pitch, I think they sold it as the American James Bond in a way. Oh. So it was a really fun show, actiony, but yeah. humor. And it, it, it yeah. uh, we had a ton of ton of fun on it a good friend of ours uh, uh who we never worked with um 
but uh, we, we had recommended um, ended up uh, becoming the co-showrunner, which was uh, Jesse Alexander. So it was great to work right? with Jesse oh. and, uh, you know, who who come off Lost and Alias and a bunch of stuff. So it was just and it was a super close. I mean, it was like Fox was like for me, it was like walking distance from my house. So it was like everything about that gig was amazing. It was like the dream job. Other than it didn't get renewed, you know. Right. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. And then uh, a couple of years later on Lebr- the librarians, which is well, yeah, show. I mean, it was great was I known Dean Devlin for years, but we never really worked together. And oh. um, our line producer on Agent X, you know, had said to Dean, you know, these guys are like rock stars because they, they, you know, not really, they're not only really good writers, but they understand production because we right. were saving their ass in production on a lot of times because Steve and I coming from doing independent movies really understand how you do things for a price. A lot of writers never mm-hmm. think or don't even understand how to yeah. manage for budget. We're very good with that. So yes. um, oh, line producers great. love us. You no, know, that's say, oh, you know, that's we need to cut, skill. you know, $40,000 out of this episode. We know exactly what to do. Mm. And so, so, you know, Dean was like, oh, great. And then, so he, it was his first year running the writer's room. So we ended up, ended up going to, to librarians and we had a great time in librarians, great group of people, super fun show, it's great show. you know. And then, you know, we sold this pilot and it looked like it was going to go. And I remember it was so f- annoying because Dean was like, oh, you know, we just got picked up for season five and I want you guys to come back. And it was like, oh, we just sold this pilot. And it looks like going to go. And it's like, can you wait? And he's like, I can't wait. I got to make a decision. And I'm like, well, I think we, our show's going to go. So we're not going to come back. But thank uh. you so much. This means so much. And then the show didn't get picked up. It was this thing for El Rey called Tito's Tacos. And that that's a long and sad story. And uh, but everyone had been telling us that it was absolutely going to go. And, you know, it was a chance for us to run a show. And, uh, you know, even, you know, it was just it was really um, it sucked because I I, I would I would drop by occasionally to the writer's room and say how things and they were having so much fun. And it was little little did they know at the time it was going to be the last season. And I would have loved to have been there for um season five of, but do you uh, think do you think that would have taken because that was a couple years before then pandora so i mean do you think that that would have conflicted would you have been able to do both like i don't know and cultivate uh, pandora well i don't know because the thing about you know the thing about pandora was really born out of my frustration with the tito's not going so right. um so? i knew that uh, uh cw was looking for these uh lower budget uh summer shows and uh, so I specifically can see, you know, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of times you come up with a show because, you know, you have a story you're passionate to tell or, yeah. um, you know, you, you option a book or, 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 or and, you know, something or comic or whatever. And in this case, it was specifically I knew about an opportunity mm-hmm. and I targeted it and I, I knew the Pedowitz wanted a space show mm-hmm. uh, who is that, uh, you know, and so literally conceived the show for, for him. For, right. for the for, for the CDO. and and then I brought in a visual effects company to do sort of a a, a demo reel mm. and um Craft Davis was phenomenal Sorry. and then we cut this whole sizzle reel because we had nothing out with a script and right. a sizzle reel and a bible you know a light a slow a small bible and you know we were able to sell it and you know the biggest problem we had because it was a really remarkable experience so far has been um we got picked we they were they were on the fence not on the fence they hadn't gotten their budget yet and didn't know what they were going to be able to offer, if they were going to be able to green light it. Finally, green light the show in February. Okay. And we had to be on the air in June, July. Wow. So we started shooting in April. And, you know, this was also a lower budget show. And we had to build a ton of sets because it was a space sci-fi show. So it was really, really difficult to get on the air that quickly. Mm. You see it in the show as it gets better and better throughout the season, because clearly we're figuring out how to make the show in real time with the and, uh, and with the, with the budget or lack thereof that we had. So I was really happy with the way it all shook out. And you can see that the second season is much stronger. It, it's just much because we learned so many lessons on the on the on the, on the first season but i'm very proud of the show i mean yeah. and and it's done very well for amazon on right. amazon prime uh, i'm really happy that you know people you know we have some really dedicated passionate fans and you know all of us who make the show just love doing it i mean we we gotten to do a little social commentary a little allegory a little metaphor which all great science fiction does and um, we stretch our very minimal budget to the very breaking point. And, you know, yeah. for the second season, we got to build a, you know, spaceship and and, we, yeah. and, and all kinds that. of really great it sets. You because more of a budget. Well, we had the right production designer. You know, the funny thing is, you know, I didn't have much time to hire 
the first season and I really, I, I don't regret who I hired, but it was more like she was not somebody who, she was like somebody who did very, she's very, I wouldn't say pretentious isn't the word, but somebody who very erudite and who designed like statues and art pieces. And, you know, her idea of sci-fi, I don't think she'd ever seen sci-fi. So her instincts were to go very Buck Rogers and very Flash Gordon-y. And, you know, Um, I kind of had a, I liked her personally. Plus, yeah, we we just never really saw eye to eye. Even though I got along with her, she was a difficult personality, but I sort of cracked the code with her. So I got along with her, but she was tough and and didn't have a lot of time and, and didn't have a lot of money. And so- it was tough because we were limited in what we could do. The second season, I hired a guy who got it. And it was just like what there he did go. was freaking awesome. Yeah. With, again, very, very little money. I was thrilled. That was that was really, you know, really great. And again, you know, it was like because we made it the second season during COVID for all intents and purposes, had a much smaller budget because we didn't get an overage for COVID mitigation. Mm-hmm. We had to take it out of our budget. I heard so it. It's like 20% sometimes, right? It, it, it could be as high as 20%. Wow. And we had to pay for regular testing of the cast and crew, uh, um, keeping, you know, all the, you know, uh, catering had to change, PPE. everything on set, PP. And we were at the very beginning of this whole process. Right. I mean, you know, I went out there last February because we shoot in Europe in Sofia. And uh, I was there for a week when things started to get really bad. And we had a meeting right. and we said, what are we going to do? And I said, there's only one thing we got to shut down. I said, yeah. we can't put people at risk. You know, we're going to have to wait and see what happens. Right. And everyone to their credit, not one person in the room disagreed. And, you Go know, ahead. and, and, and uh, in fact, I, I, so one of the accountants came out to me in tears and gave me a big hug. And it was like, what, what, why are you doing this? And she says, because there are a lot of producers who wouldn't do what you just did. And I was, that was very, it was very sweet. And she said, no, we got to look for the cast and crew first and foremost. That's the most important thing. And, you know, we can't risk people getting sick. The irony, of course, was then, you know, that was when they were closing. uh, Suddenly the next day they said, "Okay, we're closing everything down. We're going to stop flights to America. So I immediately got headed back to U.S. and I immediately got coronavirus on the way back. So um, I got sick coming back. Because that was when they said, don't wear masks, right? They said, don't wear masks. So I didn't wear masks. I'm looking at all the people with masks saying, wow, they're not listening to the CDC. They say, don't wear masks. I'm not going to wear a mask. And they're telling me not to wear one. And so, and then I remember getting LAX and they heard us like cattle all together, you know, through, and they didn't, you know, through, you know, through uh, customs. And and that's clearly where I I got oh, it yeah. because a week and a week later, I was sick as a dog for a month and yeah, um, 100%. it was awful. And then so we ended up going back uh, uh, in in June and, and, and starting we shot over the summer. And it was just, you know, it's one of those frustrating things because they're all like, you know, uh, we understand because you're one of the first shows back and how hard it is. You know, we don't expect, you know, as many extras and we understand how limited you are because of coronavirus right. and all this other stuff. <laughs> and one of the first notes I get is, hey, uh, the uh, bridge of the ship feels a little underpopulated. There don't seem to be as many extras as we would think. And it's like, oh, my God, this yeah. is the problem yeah. note in a nutshell. This yeah. is everything I hate about this business. The notes from executives. It was ridiculous. And we had good creative executives on the show. But you know, this was a note from someone else. Okay. Uh, and, and it was like, what the what? Yeah. And I'm just like, you know, after you get the whole thing, we, we're so amazing. We have nothing to put on the air. We, we can't believe you guys got back into production. And then they put us on Sunday nights at eight, you know, uh, against football and uh. The Walking Dead. And and it was just like, oh, my uh. God, I thought you were gonna give us a good time slot. So uh, anyway, it was we're, we're in the very early stages of uh, prep for the third season, which is exciting. Yes, very exciting. And <laughs> um, let's break down a little bit. Can you just break down for us a bit the role of a showrunner? Because I think not everyone sure. probably understands what that means. The job of the showrunner is it, a very, you know, they say like when you go to the Writers Guild, the showrunners training program, it's like being the head of a multinational corporation mm. because you're not only overseeing everybody assumes, Oh, well, that you oversee the scripts, which is true. You rewrite the scripts, you, you, you staff, but you're also picking all your keys, which means production designer, directors, costume designer, uh, your DP. These are all things you know, uh, that you're intimately involved with, or absolutely the, 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 the last 
the first and the last stop for making these decisions. Right. Now the network is going to have opinions. The, the, the studio is going to have opinions. You're working with the line producer, make sure you come in on budget. You're manager gonna be in, to make sure mm-hmm. that all of them are running smoothly. You're going to be in, in post-production, in editing and oversee the cut you know, and, and locking the cut and you're going to approve in our case, visual effects as well. And then you're going to also be in the sound mix, you know, where you're mixing it and color timing, which is the final, you know, uh, air master, what what it's going to look like. So it is multitasking on top of multitasking on top of multitasking. Now, you know, there are some showrunners where they are basically focused only on the writing and they have a producer that oversees a lot. There's very few and far between. It's nothing I would ever be interested in. But you run uh, you run the writer's room. It's your room. And that's, you know, or sometimes you'll have a showrunner who is a number two whose job is to run the writer's room and they're not really in the writer's room much. I think that's that's tough not to be in the writer's room. Now, what happens is it's misleading because when you start a series um, before and production is like months away, it's very languid and everybody's sitting in the writer's room, kicking ideas around and slow. And there's not a lot of pressure and everybody's, you know, taking their time. And then all of a sudden you get close and you start getting into pre-production for that first episode. And then the pressure starts and then, but it's like a roller coaster because you're going, you know, you're going up, 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 up. And then you get to the top and it's like, you got episodes that you're still writing episodes. You're prepping episodes that are in post. Right. And, and then it's like, you're going down until you're in just finally in post whenever everything's wrapped. Yeah. That is a great day when you've wrapped your final episode of the season and you're just in post because you finally feel like you're in control again because you have no control. Yeah. When you're, and particularly in COVID, because in addition to everything else, you're also worried about is anyone going to show up or any yeah. tests going to show up positive. So it is insanely it is a it is a high wire act. And it's something that not everyone is equipped for. Yeah. But if you are, it is one of the most satisfying and, and happy experiences. I mean, you know, I absolutely love it. And it's so funny because, you know, when you're doing it, you're like, oh, I can't wait till this is over. And then when it's over, you're like, I can't wait to do it again. I get that. You know? I get that. Um, We have a lot of actors who listen to the podcast. And I, I think, I don't know if all actors are aware that the final casting decision always comes down to the showrunner. So do you have any suggestions or tips for actors yeah that's that's a good question i love actors and i love working with actors and i just by the way i just finished the great um book by mark harris uh, mike nichols a life and i recommend that any actor read that it's so wonderful it's so wonderful and um really a really great book about mike Nichols, who was who mike nichols who was a director for not only stage and film who just truly loved actors and knew how to talk to them and it's it's just a it's a wonderful book so i highly recommend it you know it is true but i will say that in casting series regulars it's different because yes you you kind of have veto power and yes you can advocate for who you want but that's something where the studio and the network they have to approve. there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen yeah and I even the producers who maybe are less involved everyone has to say there's a lot of back and forth got it a lot of back and forth and i mean i remember you know at least when pandora originally i had written it with a an asian lead and that changed pretty quick mm. because uh, um you know and it, it was uh, so for, for, for for various reasons i mean when we ended up having a latino lead but um but you know a lot of that is based on you know network and and studio i've heard that and, happens a lot specifically for asian leads that they're written like i have a couple friends who are asian actors and they'll say a lot of times i'll see that series regular role change from asian to white or change in this case to latino which is still good because you get that representation well and i think you know for us a lot of the roles were, were um no ethnicity like we would mm. just see everyone and, right and and that you know because if there wasn't a specific reason someone was a certain ethnicity then we would want to see the world and you know and then you know a lot of our casting unfortunately uh by necessity was done out of the uk i mean we got great actors out of the uk but uh in some cases particularly with our local actors we were really limited because in Sofia there's not much in the way of ethnicity yeah and that was something that was really important to us to have a you know have a diverse cast and something I'm really proud of about the show absolutely um and continue can you know continue to be um but um but I think that for actors yeah it's it's true and it can be very frustrating because you feel like oh my god I killed it and the showrunner really loves me and we have this connection we worked together before and like and then you don't get cast you're like why yeah, there are other factors. And sometimes yeah. it's a trade-off too. It's like, yeah, I really wanted to hire this person. 
and I got them and now I have to give on this person, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. or one of the financiers really wants someone for God knows what reason, you know, and then you're like, okay, I'll give them that because I need this person. You right. Know? I get that. So the, the, there's so many political factors that enter into it beyond who's just the best performer. And it's also subjective. It's also a question of taste. Like I can see somebody, I think they're absolutely phenomenal. You know, and also you might have a casting director who really goes to bat for somebody. Right. Like I remember, you know, our, our lead Priscilla Quintana, um, I really believed in her. I loved her. And there were people who were not as high in her. Our casting director really believed in her. And, and she's like, I know, Mark, how, how what a fan you are. You know, and I said, I said, you, we're not going to get her approved at this. So I got on the phone with her and I basically coached her and, you know, told her what to do in the audition. And I said, then send me the audition. I will look at it and I will give you notes. Nice. And 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 so she ended up that's what we ended up doing. And she ended up, you know, and then we circulated and then everybody, I, I mean, I told her what to do, what to wear, what to everything. And it was like Pygmalion. Right. And, and so, um, and that's then funny. the studio and the network. Hey, you gotta do what you gotta do. That's amazing. That's an amazing yeah. story. Um, so just a couple small, quick questions. I always ask mentors at the end of the podcast, what is your definition of success? And has that evolved? I know quick, right? You know, no, I, I look, I, you know, success is, and I truly believe is doing what you love. I, I'm a big believer in that. I, I just feel like you, you, your life's going to be a lot better if you do what you love, mm. you know? And it's like, don't do what your mother wants you to do. You know, it's yeah. like, uh, it, it's, it's, it, it's really, it's like, you know, don't do what you feel obligated to do. You know, it's like, mm. oh, I want to do what's safe. You know, it's like, you're not going to be happy if you don't do what you love. So you got to yeah. pursue what you love. And, you know, even, even the stuff I made that hasn't been entirely successful, I'm glad I did it. You know, yeah. I, 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 you know, there are a lot of movies where I don't love the finished result, but I love the experience of making it. And, and, you know, sometimes it's just like an opportunity. Sometimes I've said yes when I should have said no. Yeah. But, you know, but then I just you meet the right people, stuff. you learn the lessons, you enjoy the process. And that's kind of what it's about. But I love that. Yeah, exactly. Love. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that to me is, it's not just like one of these like little, uh, you know, axioms. It's, it's really true. True. It's, it's really yeah. true. You'll be able, you know, be a lot happier. You'd be a lot happier in your life. And it translates to your personal life. You're better, I think with other people. And I agree. You know, if you're happy. I agree you know? with that. And then uh, who are your mentors? Who are a couple of your mentors? I, I got a couple, Um, a couple. I'm glad you asked that question. It's not a question I get asked a lot. And I like giving credit where credit is due. One was uh, a, a college professor of mine, Tom Tardy, he's a professor of American studies. Now I was a political science major. There wasn't a film and TV program at Brandeis at the time. So I took whatever film and TV classes they had. They were few and far between. It was a wonderful professor, Professor Janowitz, who I think taught fiction and film in the English department, which I love where you read a book and then see the movie. That's so great. it was like, I remember reading Heart, Hearts of Darkness, the, the Sophie, Cop not Sophie, yeah, Eleanor Coppola book. Coppola. And then we watched Hearts of Darkness and Apocalypse Now. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to remember what the other, I mean, here it is 30 years later, but I still remember that class very vividly. Um, but Tom Darty was really special. I mean, Tom is someone I'm still close with. Um, when I wrote my first book, uh, The Fifth Year Mission, which was an oral history of Star Trek, um, I interviewed him for that. He had great insights. Um, he is, oh, you know, when he's out here, I always make a point and he always makes a point of seeing each other. Um, uh, he was very supportive, uh, uh, you know, of me at the time, uh, it continues to be, uh, I just think the world of him and he really, um, broadened my knowledge of film and my passion and the way I look at it. And I've really enjoyed a lot of the books that he's written. Um, do you have any messages and... from him? I'm seeing him tonight at seven o'clock. Oh my God. Really? <laughs> yes. Yeah. He, so he, uh, we're doing, Arnon and I are doing another panel this month and he's going to be our panelist next month with uh, next week, I think, or two weeks with Scott Fine, two weeks, Does... Scott Feinberg and him are going to come on and do a post Oscars chat. Just that I'm so indebted to him for his, uh, you know, you know, for, 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 for what a great teacher, you know, I, I always, I had this teacher in high school that to me, like the, the, the teacher that I, the iconic famous teacher to me, it was never like um, Dead Poet Society or Stand and Deliver. It was always for what, I don't know what this says about me, was Professor Kingsfield in the paper chase, John Houseman, you oh, know, who's this disapproving, yeah. tough, but yet, you know, you wanted to please him. Now, Tom was not that guy. I had yeah. a, guy, a guy in high school who was um, Mr. Bruckner, who was the principal who I took an AP history class. He was Kingsfield to me. Mm. Uh, and, and I loved that man and that class. And I thought that's what a great teacher had to be. 
And I realized with Doherty that it, you didn't have to be Professor Kingsfield. You don't have to be as withholding. You could be encouraging. And 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 Tom was always that. And I, you know, but Tom also didn't suffer fools gladly. Like he loved the fact that we would go to the movies he would talk about every weekend. And we come in having gone into Boston and seen whatever was new and that we could talk about any film yeah. that we genuinely love this because, you know, he's, he's like me on set. It's like, I love the people who are happy who want to be there. The people is just a job. Eh. But the people who like love what they do passionate. and give 110% or passion, I love that. Yeah. And Tom responded to passion. And, you know, I don't know if I was the greatest student. I was okay. But um, I just uh, I just think the world of him. And, he, you know, I'm so glad. And I hope, you know, everyone has a teacher like Tom mm. that can inspire them, you know, to, to, to you know, and, and just inspire their love of learning, yeah. you know. And, yeah. and, 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 and him and Sandy are just special mm. people. So that's one, that's one mentor. Another, you know, another mentor, um, you know, was Fred Clark, who was a published to Cine Fantastic, who died, who just gave me incredible opportunities um, uh, as a journalist. Um, and I'm very, very grateful to him, which is why I bought the magazine after he passed away, mm. um, just to continue his legacy, because uh, he had really been, um, Give me a great opportunity. And then look, uh, he, I don't even know if you know this, but there was, um, there was a producer on Star Trek Next Generation, a guy named Mike Pillar. He wasn't so much a mentor to me as much as um, I learned. I learned a lot in those days. To me, that was my film school because mm. it was a time where I was covering Next Generation. The first time I was on the set of Next Gen was when I was editor of the Justice and I got this press kit and it was announcing a new Star Trek series. And it says, this is, uh, 50 ways Paramount encouraged users to cover the new Star Trek series. And number 30 or two or something was uh, do a set visit. So I called up and I said, hey, this is Mark Ullman, editor of the Justice. I want to do a set visit to the exciting set of Star Trek Adventures. And they said, great. When do you want to come? And I said, uh, I said, well, uh, next month, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, and then I said, I got to bring my photographer, my college roommate. Yeah. And uh one other person I to hold the camera. I don't know my, yeah. who's my best friend. So the three of us, your for, team, uh, the team flew out to um, uh, 1987, 1988, flew out to California. We went to the set of Next Generation for two or three days. And um, that's amazing. Interviewed everyone. It was like they were filming like the fourth or fifth episode. And um, it was too short a season was the episode. Wow. And uh, it was just an incredible experience and 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 I continued to cover next generation for many years which proved to be sort of the root of what later became my best selling book the 50 year mission uh Michael Pillar was a producer who who died way too young of throat cancer mm -hmm. and uh he he was a producer showrunner on the on the third season and I learned so much from him mm -hmm. just by the many interviews I did and he was always so open to talking he was a guy who mentored so many young writers and like obviously I was on the staff I wasn't anybody who worked for him I I wouldn't say I was like you know Ron Moore or Brandon or the guys who worked for him who he mentored but in a way just by the fact that we would spend hours talking yeah and I, I'll, I'll never forget like you know if I said something critical he would call me up and he wouldn't be angry he couldn't understand it he was like, how could you not like that episode? Or how could you not like that scene? And we would just talk about it. But unlike other people, he's never like, I cut you off. I want it. He, we, he would like, just be like, okay, you know, I don't get it, but you know, whatever. And we could yeah. argue, but there was no animity. There was no negativity. It was just, it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. And Michael was just a terrific. Yeah. And, you know, I considered him a friend. And I remember when my first movie opened, when Free Enterprise opened, I invited him to the premiere. I never thought in a million years he'd come. He came to the premiere. He just wanted to support me. Yeah. Fucking great. Great man. Really wow. great man. So that was another mentor, you know, yeah. so Tom Doherty, Michael Pillar, uh, Fred Clark, you know, these, yep. these were all people. I mean, I would say one of the agents I worked for, uh, Bono yeah. uh, Galani, she was a, she was in a way of a, a mentor. She, 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 you know, taught she was very sophisticated and, and charming and hard, hardworking. And um, I remember when she was getting married, she basically dumped all her work on me for you know a couple of months. And I was happy to do it because yeah. um, she had been so supportive of me mm. and was such a wonderful person. Yeah. So this was, those, you know, probably the, the key people. Yeah. And, you know, I've been very lucky to get to do what yeah. I love. And obviously, you know, and now we have our, you know, the podcast also with the 430 movie and, and Glorious Trexperts, uh, which have been very successful. And I do with Dean Devlin. So, yeah. you know, the thing is, don't burn bridges because, you know, if you have, uh, 
you know, people you work with and you enjoy it, chances are you're going to circle back to them over and over again. And it's been a great experience and I hope it's only getting started because, um, you know, what is it? What is it? When I paint my masterpiece, the song, I I, I want to do something like, you know, Tombstone. I haven't done it yet. You know, Free Enterprise is a great experience. Worked on shows I love, works that I don't love, that have been fun, but I'm, I, I, I want to do that great, that great piece of art that I've yet to, mm-hmm. yet to do. I'm well, you have so that, much time. I, mean, I love giving yeah. back and, you know, what I've learned because I feel like, you know, there's no point telling the stories of how we broke in because everyone's going to break in different. There's no like one yes. way. There's no like, one size fits all. So it's good to just hear a bunch of different people's stories because maybe that will inspire for a certain person their you know path. Which is the whole premise of the podcast, mind you, which is the idea that you can't, it's not like anyone's going to emulate your your journey, but they can learn from it. And they can learn from you and David and, and many people who are doing this and maybe Absolutely. take some tips and, and you know, you see what, see what comes up. This has been so great. And I'm just, I'm learning so much from you and I really appreciate it. I'm oh, sure. it's my, look, it's my pleasure. And if, if you, in the future, you want to talk more, be happy, happy to do so. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend in entertainment, you know, would love it. Let me know what you've learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram at Mentors on the Mic. I love reading your messages. Uh, you can also find me at, at Michelle Simone Miller on Instagram. On both accounts, I'll be sharing even more information about our mentors. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. It makes it easier for people to find our podcast, and I love reading your reviews. So thank you so much, and I'll see you next week.